Okay, so we need to talk about Mary and Martha. Again. We have this reading from Luke's Gospel once every three years. And it often turns into some kind of a contest or a debate. Are you going to be on Team Mary or Team Martha? How do you feel about Mary sitting there listening to Jesus while Martha was working in the kitchen all by herself? What was Jesus thinking when he inserted himself into a family squabble between two sisters? Well, I'm going to get into some of that later on. But first I have to say just a little bit about how this short story came to carry so much cultural baggage for us. From at least the second century in Christian history, commentators reading this story have taken the two sisters as allegorical figures for what they call the two lives, the two lives of action and contemplation. Martha represented the active life with her ministry of hospitality and feeding. Mary, the contemplative life as she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. And since Jesus in the story seems to be chastising Martha for her busyness and commending Mary for her devotion, you might expect that the Christian commentators would all say contemplation is better than action. And many of them do, but the reason might surprise you. They say when Jesus notes, when Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better part which shall not be taken away from her, they explain contemplation is better than action because it will last forever, even after we die. There are no hungry people to feed in heaven. There are no sick people to nurse. There are no sad people to console. In heaven, everyone will be like Mary all the time, delighting in the presence of Christ without any need to worry about anything else. But those early Christian theologians were quick to point out we're not in heaven yet. As long as we are in this world, both action and contemplation are necessary. The question is, how do you balance the two? And that's where the debates really begin. As you might expect, the cloistered monks and nuns, they took Mary as their model, while the active religious orders like the Franciscans and the Dominicans were partial to Martha. Meister Eckhart, for instance, has a wonderful sermon where he explains that what happens later is that Martha actually converts Mary to being an active person. And so it turns out that Martha was right and Mary just took a little longer to catch up with her. But in the end, no matter which side they come down on, Everyone agreed that life in this world is always going to require both contemplation and action, both prayer and service, both being and doing. This side of heaven, they said, the mixed life is the best life. Mary and Martha, after all, are sisters who belong together. They're not enemies or rivals. As Richard Rohr said about his Center for Contemplation and Action in New Mexico, the most important word in that title is and, contemplation and action. 
Okay, but that has not stopped people from splitting them apart and challenging us again and again to choose between them. I've seen Mary and Martha held up as models of the tension between extroverts and introverts, between Catholic works and Protestant faith, between the STEM disciplines and the humanities. Yes, there's a whole book about that. Between social action and liturgy. Maybe some of you are wondering now whether you should be Martha at the Peddler's Fair or Mary at the next contemplative prayer service. But whether we think of Mary and Martha as personality types or vocational choices or just scheduling alternatives, it seems we're always being forced to choose between them. And even if we're told that both of them are good, it seems more than a little unfair when Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better part. How do we get past that? Well, this morning, I want to suggest to you that this story isn't about choosing between Mary and Martha. Actually, it's not a story about Mary and Martha at all. It's a story about Martha and Jesus. Mary doesn't have anything to say in the story. She doesn't really figure other than as someone that Martha and Jesus are talking about. She just sits there while Martha and Jesus use her as a way for them to get into what's going on with Martha. Martha is the focus of the story because she's the one who has something to learn. She's the one that Jesus addresses in a way that conveys, I think, both caring and maybe a little bit of mild consternation. Martha, Martha. You know, there are other times in the Gospels that Jesus repeats somebody's name. Simon, Simon. That's right before he says, you're going to betray me three times. <laughs> um, and then in the book of Acts, the voice from Jesus is a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Martha, Martha, how can we read this as a story of gospel transformation about Martha and about us? The British author A.S. Byatt has a short story called Christ in the House of Martha and Mary. She provides a backstory for the painting that you see in your bulletin on the first page. So you might want to take a look at that. It's a 17th century Spanish painting by Velazquez that you see pictured there. And by its story, she's imagining how that painting came to be. And she says, the scowling young woman at the center of the painting is named Dolores. She's a servant girl who has a real gift for cooking, but she resents having to work for a family of spoiled rich people who fail to appreciate either her or her fine cuisine. The older woman on the left is Concepcion, who appears to be admonishing Dolores about something and pointing to the biblical scene of Martha, Mary, and Jesus on the right side, which may be a picture on the kitchen wall, or perhaps it's a cutout, and we're see, actually seeing through the wall, and they're seated there in the next room. 
As Bayard imagines it, the painter of the picture is a frequent guest in the home where Dolores and Concepcion are working. Seeing Dolores's frustration, her anger and resentment about her place in life, the painter asks her, have you ever heard the story of Mary and Martha? She says, no, I know my catechism. I know the Lord's Prayer, but I don't know, I don't know that one. So he tells her the story. And then immediately Concepcion, the older woman, tries to draw a moral from the story. And she says, see Dolores, that's telling you, you should learn to accept the station that the Lord has given you. And perhaps that's the moment that we see in the painting there. Concepcion's words make Dolores' eyes run hot with tears. Oh. But the painter says, no, 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 by no means. It's not a question of accepting our station in the world as people have ordered it, but of learning not to be filled with care and troubled. Dolores here has her way to that better part, even as I have, and like mine, it begins in attention to loaves and fishes. What matters, the painter says, is that Dolores sees things. She understands what the wise understand, the nature of garlic and onions, butter and oil, eggs and fish, peppers, aubergines, pumpkins, and corn. The cook, he says, as much as the painter, looks into the essence of the creation, not in, as the painter does in light and on surfaces, but with the other senses, with taste and smell and touch, which God has also made in us. And the painter goes on to tell Dolores what she needs to learn is that the divide is not between the servants and the served, between the leisured and the workers, we might say between the Marthas and the Marys, but between those who are interested in the world and those who merely get along. You have a way in, the painter tells Dolores. Take it. A cook also contemplates mysteries. So maybe that's what Jesus was trying to teach Martha as well. A cook also contemplates mysteries. It isn't what you do that matters, but how you do it and why. The cook cleans the fish and boils the eggs. The painter captures their images on canvas with color, light, and shade. The scientist explains how they nourish our living cells. The economist calculates their cost in the market, and the poet praises God who created them out of nothing. All of these people, in their various ways, are contemplating mysteries. Whoever you are, you have a way in to the heart of things. Whatever you're doing, do it with interest. Do it with attention and appreciation and a sense of wonder. That's the one thing necessary. That is your better part. Well, I could end the sermon right there. But there's one more thing. The painter in Byatt's story also tells Dolores that her anger has power. And he's right. 
Because I don't think Jesus was telling Martha she shouldn't be angry with Mary for leaving her alone in the kitchen. Mary probably had some things she needed to learn as well. And as Meister Eckhart said in some interpretations of the story, that's what happens later. It was Martha's confrontation that later prompted Mary to move from discipleship to apostleship, from learning to serving. But in any case, anger is a strong motivator. The good thing about anger, at least sometimes, is that it shows us something is wrong and needs to change, whether it's in other people or most often in ourselves. Sometimes we need to complain and make demands and call out injustice. If Martha had just accepted the situation and stayed in the kitchen, nobody would have been challenged to learn and grow. So we can trust that Martha's transformation, like that of Dolores, made her a contemplative in action. That's the end goal. And it's a beautiful thing. But you know, in real life, transformation usually starts with somebody getting mad. So that's it. Find your way in. Pay attention to what you're doing. Remember there's power in your anger. Let Jesus teach you what is needed and prepare to be transformed.